Yeah, I, I'm thinking more about like, you know, bridge loans or whatever, like loans for growth once These you do acquire don't the have access to that, Simone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I get that. Advice to normal people. <laughs> yes. Okay. So anyway, yes, SBN loans are are great and they do okay. provide a lot of opportunity. However, let's, let's go into what I would suggest is the number one way that, that I would look at creating a company if I was an average middling to above middling intelligence person okay. living in the U.S., yeah. right? Would you like to know more? So Malcolm, there's a person in our family who would really, really love, loves money and definitely encourages us to make money. And whenever she's been unhappy with how much money we're making, her advice is always just tell them to pay you more, which yeah. I love. This is my mom who's, who's not with us anymore, but she would always do this, just be like, I'd be like, oh, I'm making this much. And she goes, that's not enough for you. You just need to tell them to pay you more. And I was like, I'll get fired if I do that. You know that, right? Yeah. And she goes, you just need to be firm. And I think <laughs> so many older generations are this way. This isn't like, just go and, and bang on doors at offices until you get hired. But one of the things, you know, if you look at online influencers and stuff like that, sort of the place they always end up, whether you're talking about Girl Defined or Andrew Tate or even Trump, is trying to teach people how to make money. And they'll create these little universities for making them because it's true. You know, if you're building your own little community, you know, one of the things that's easiest to promise them is financial independence and wealth. So you promise them that, you get them to waste money on that, and and it ends up, you know, some I think some of it is pretty good. So you look at like Hustle University and stuff like that, like mm -hmm. what Andrew Tate is doing and some of the other ones. It's he's reasonable. He has he's to easy. figure out how to tell idiots how like because and i'm not saying that he disproportionately attracts idiots i'm saying if your reach is wide enough no matter who you are a huge chunk of that is going the majority of that is going to be idiots it yeah. has the statement goes you know how dumb the average person is well half of them are dumber than that exactly you gotta be selling them all sorts of stuff like drop shipping and stuff like that, like ideas that anyone can focus but on. The, the, the great thing about what he's doing that I really respect is most people who I see online who are selling these kinds of programs, they're like sort of pyramid schemes and they're based around coaching. Like I'm a coach, you be a coach, you make money like me, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't so really Girl like Defines kind of was, continue. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, she's one of like a million. What I like about what Andrew Tate is doing is he's giving people very concrete, very practical, often like very unromantic. You know, they're, they're not sexy. They're not about yeah. becoming a famous, beautiful coach that everyone wants to follow. You know, it's, it's about copywriting. It's about drop shipping. Like you said, it's about opening an online shop. It's about very like straightforward stuff that most people could do. And for which, with the exception of copywriting, there is demand. And, you know, I don't think AI was ballooning the way it was when he first started this copywriting course. So I do admire um, what Andrew Tate is doing with that. But yeah. you're absolutely right. That That is what you typically see when some influencer tries to start teaching their audience so, so, to make money. I mean, I want to start by being clear that I actually think that he is probably the most honest in terms of what he's promising people yeah. of yeah. all of the people I have seen do this. Yeah. So good on him. But we're going to do something a little different because you know, I have my MBA from Stanford, right? Like I am in terms of making money, probably one of the most educated types of people there there are, you know, Simone got her degree from Cambridge in technology policy. And we have done something that gave us a huge insight that normal people don't have, which is called a search fund. So not only did we learn how to raise money from investors, like we've done venture capital, both of us have worked in venture capital. So we know that whole industry, but we went out there and we had to find a company to buy. So we were emailing, you know, thousands of companies, CEOs every week. 
interviewing, I think you got an average of 80 interviews a week, finding out how, and you did this for about two years, finding out how just hundreds, if not thousands of companies worked inside and out, how they were built, everything like that, which gave you, and these are normal companies. These are not Mm -hmm. like VC companies. So the first thing I would say to people interested is if you are uniquely intellectually gifted, so I'm going to like break this into categories. And if you're okay with high risk, high reward opportunities, go to Silicon Valley, go live in a hacker house, meet the VCs, start, you know, get working on startups, uh, go that route. You can even go the VC route. You just have to be very ambitious, very hardworking, and and know that you are very intelligent. And you I mean, actually, well networked. you have to be well networked to get the deal flow. You need to actually find. No, you really don't need good. to be well networked. You become really? well networked. You have to be able to become. Well oh, networked. sure. Yeah, you have to have the potential for sure. Yeah, you don't have to start but, out like, that way. The network you go into Silicon Valley with is pretty irrelevant. Yeah, that's um, totally true. As long as you're able to build it. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately you have to live in Silicon Valley, which is a shithole right now, but, Mm. and there are a few other places you can do this out of. You can do this out of Singapore. You can do this out of London, maybe, but that's really it. (laughs) Maybe there's some other places. No, I've looked at the ecosystems for doing VC in other countries and it's just really bad. They almost Mm. never end up with economic successes. We could go deep into why this is. Actually, you are better off at having a big success in a country that is smaller than a country with a medium-sized economy. Mm-hmm. So like if you're in Korea or Japan or Germany, you're much less likely to have a, a huge economic success starting like a startup style company than you would in a country like Norway or Finland or Sweden or Estonia. So keep that in mind or Singapore for, for that matter. And now, the reason why, just to, to give a little bit of color there per Malcolm's hypothesis is that Nations that are so small basically have to start out being global, which basically means yeah. that you'll you'll discover if you can have global range and global market potential very quickly. Whereas when you're in a medium market where you could sell a lot domestically, like Germany, like like South Korea, you could basically get stuck in the trap of selling and specializing for your local market, which ultimately has a very limited ceiling. And so people kind of get stuck in that. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, com- companies that do well, like Cacao in South Korea, they begin to grow inwards on themselves with right. stuff like, you know, Cacao Uber, basically, Cacao <laughs> Talk, Cacao, you know, Cacao App Store. Okay. So anyway, um, I'm going to take a quick moment here to describe the different types of capital, because this is important to know about if you're thinking about starting a company. So we just talked about one core category, which is if you just have enormous faith in yourself and you're young and you have educated yourself to some extent. And I mean, you need to be like actually highly educated. I have talked to our fan base. I know a lot of them are of this smart category, but the people in this ecosystem will ferret you out very quickly if you aren't highly educated. And I don't mean in a university context. I just mean that you've taught yourself. And hopefully when we build our school system and we release it like Q1 this next year or Q2 this next year, it would get you there if you completed it. But anyway. Well, and I I do really want to emphasize that like, especially in Silicon Valley, thank goodness, this is not one of those worlds where you really do need credentials and and, and many VCs really, really just care about merit. So this is one of those few places where educated actually means what Malcolm is saying, like literally knowing your shit, not having a piece of paper. That doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and having social competence. We've seen a few people pitch to VCs and they like lack basic social competence and they come off as crazy. No, don't come off as crazy to VCs. That will not help you. I, I hmm. If you have a problem with coming off as crazy to people, this is not the route for you. We will go over routes that could work for you. This is not one of them. Coming hmm. off as crazy to people means that you are low, like emotional IQ. You just can't read people very well and that's going to cause problems. If you're autistic, and that's why you're, that's totally different. VCs yeah. will love that. 
Yeah. But if you are on the schizoid side, which. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, is because I mean, like a little bit on the schizoid side and you're really good at modeling people, but we know a lot of people who are both extremely smart, but too far. And then yeah, they, they don't know like, boundaries. You, you pass some kind of weird threshold where suddenly you stop being able to model people well. Great. Okay. So yes. So with venture capital on average, even if you're looking at the best firms, they make their money on one of every 13 deals, which means that they cannot invest in companies that will do middlingly well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even if it's going to be like a $500 million company, that is still a failure in many VC eyes, right? So if you're coming to VCs, we never come to VCs as like a chain of uh, companies that do like laundry, right? That own physical locations, for example, mm -hmm. because a lot of the investment there is going to be in real estate and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And the margins just are never going to be that insanely thick. Right. Well, and it requires a lot of, you know, what it's called CapEx, you know, mm -hmm. ownership of property. So you would never with VCs do a construction company. You would never with VCs do a real estate company. Basically, they need to invest in something that is very low CapEx, which basically only software is and a few other like weird business models where like the CapEx is owned by like a different model. Yeah. And before, um, you know, our commenters were like, oh, but we work. I mean, look at how that's played out for them. So, yeah. So that was a huge mistake because they ignored the core way to do VC. Right. All right. So next, the next source of capital is going to be the source of capital that I would recommend for most people who want to start something with a high probability of working, a high probability of providing them independence and lower cost to get into, which is what I would call search fundy type companies, right? Mm -hmm. And these are companies that you can get into with debt. So mm -hmm. debt can be bank debt, right? Which is actually pretty cheap for an individual to obtain. And by that, well, especially I mean if, if you, if you get it through. So first a little bit of, of, of color search funds, also known as entrepreneurship through acquisition involves acquiring an existing company that is already performing well, typically from someone who's looking to retire and sell that company because they, you know, don't have a son or daughter to pass it on to for whatever reason. So these are often companies that are really small mom and pop businesses, very practical. This is where you are going to see dry cleaning businesses and dental offices and mosquito remediation companies and all things like that. And why the debt can be uniquely low is because this is not just bank loans that you're getting, you could be getting SBA loans. And most Let's people- Let's talk about do, an SBA loan. Yeah, yeah so Small Business Association in the United States, so this doesn't necessarily apply to every nation, other nations may have similar loan programs to this, are available to small business owners to- do all sorts of things, but in, indeed to also sort of put leverage on businesses that they acquire. So what many individual searchers do to become entrepreneurs through acquisition by acquiring one of these small businesses is they use some of their money to acquire the business in the form of equity. And then they get out an SBA loan to cover the rest of the acquisition cost. And they may do some what's called seller financing with the person basically saying, okay, well, I will pay you this much upfront with a combination of my money and debt, but then I will also pay you this other amount from the profit that I get from the business after I acquire so, it. So let's talk about the two ways that you can go about doing this, right? Because you're, you're talking about one way what I actually probably wouldn't recommend to most people because it's, it's, it's a little bit more sophisticated to acquire an existing company. But if you want to, you know, when you're coming in with some you know, maybe some money you inherited or something. Let's say you've inherited like 200K or 250K. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're putting that down. You can talk to a bank, you know, if you don't have a criminal history or something, get some debt and that can get you into a company for like 500K, right? If you buy a company at around that range, this can be a company that is 
earning, let's say, you know, when you're buying these really small companies, you can buy them at like 1x EBITDA or like 2x EBITDA or like 1.5x. EBITDA is roughly the profit of the business. Basically, it means that if you own this company, you would be bringing in about 250K a year yourself because other people don't want companies that small. Like private equity mm -hmm. funds don't want them. So they sell for really low multiples. Mm -hmm. And then you can do something called a roll up. You know, you take that money, you set it aside for a couple of years and you buy other companies in the same space. And banks are going to be even more trusting of you then because they're like, oh, you've run a company like this before. But let's talk about why SBA loans are so useful if you do not come from an economically advantaged position. Defaulting on a bank loan, a lot of people are like, oh, this is terrible. Like, what if I buy a company and it fails, right? If you get an SBA loan and you buy a company and it fails, then you go into bankruptcy. That will hurt your ability to get credit for about like five or six years, but it eventually clears out of your, your record, especially mm -hmm. if, it, if it wasn't your fault. And then you can do it again, basically. Not necessarily with an SBA loan, with another type of loan or something like that, but as long as it wasn't criminal or anything like that. And, and what this means is that if you don't have a lot of money to you, you have access to a way to get money, or if you're willing to put down all of the money you have on a deal, and then you can take an SBA loan on top of that to get capital that's actually not available to people who have assets they have to worry about. Though I would warn yeah. people that SBA loans are personally guaranteed. Yes. So one thing that we would say about this form well, you of need entrepreneurship- to explain what a personal guarantee is. A personal guarantee means that you are on the line um, when it comes to like basically collateral. Like, you know, you so could your lose your house. company can't go bankrupt. You personally you have personally, to go bankrupt. Right, right, right. Yeah, this, this is on you. It's not on like the company. Now, with normal like bank debt, like um, our, our, our travel business that we acquired through the entrepreneurship, through acquisition model has debt, but we are not on the hook. Basically, like if, if somehow... Our, our company could no longer pay this debt, then maybe our company you, would go you, to, to get that, you basically need an MBA from Stanford or Harvard. Like, yeah, it, so it's like, yeah, unfortunately, they're like, big, or, or you need to have basically a long history of audited financials for your company that sort of show that it has, you know, or, or you need to have a company that has like a lot of real estate assets. So basically, if, if a business, no, not, Simone, really, it is very hard to get that. I, it I think is, it is hard. Unrealistic it, in what you're telling people, and it's not um, a path I would go down. No, if, if you own real estate that a bank feels sufficiently confident would cover their their loan. Your um, real estate, not their real estate. They could sell their real estate separately. So that's not going to help you in the, the transaction. All I'm saying is when we applied for debt, Malcolm, as a company. No, that is was true. But think logically about what you're saying. Okay. If I'm acquiring, for example, let's say a company that does like salting roads or something like that, mm -hmm. and they have a bunch of real estate included in the price of the company is going to be all the real estate. So I can take out debt, you know, against that asset, the real estate that's included with the company, but that debt won't exceed the real estate that's included with the company and will be less than it. It'll be like 80% of it. So then where am I getting the rest of the money to buy that company? I either need to be independently wealthy or I would need to get a personally backed loan on top of the loan that is covered by the real estate the company already has. Point of clarification here, this isn't obvious to listeners, but a company's value is going to be its real estate and hard assets value plus the value of a multiple on its EBITDA, i.e. how much cash it's pulling in every year. So the value of the company is always going to be higher than the value of the real estate. I mean, unless you're in some weird situation uh, that's, that's just worth noting in terms of how you value companies. If this video does well, we could go into this stuff in a lot more detail, like how to value companies and, and where to find companies to buy, etc.
Yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking more about like, you know, bridge loans or whatever, like loans for growth once These you do acquire the don't company. have access to that, Simone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, know, give I get that. Advice to normal people. <laughs> yes. Okay. So anyway, yes, SBN loans are are great and they do okay. provide a lot of opportunity. However, let's, let's go into what I would suggest is the number one way that, that I would look at creating a company if I was an average middling to above middling intelligence person okay. living in the US, yeah. right? Or really anywhere is I would first look at search fundy type companies. So look at sites like DealStream and stuff like that. See the type mm -hmm. of companies that are selling. Mm -hmm. Talk with people who run these small companies. Understand mm -hmm. how they work. Get a feel of the landscape that's out there right now. Then start a company that is like one of these companies that you have some understanding of. So this could be like Road Salt could be maybe you have a dental degree yourself and you you start your own digital practice or it could vending be machines or dental offices or you packaging some like light production all sorts of weird things mm -hmm. or like all sorts or vending of machines i would not suggest vending machines are almost an mlm oh sorry i should also mention don't do an mlm it's stupid yeah please don't you will you will lose <laughs> any company I'll, I'll word this differently any company where somebody is getting a financial kickback for getting you involved with the company, don't do that company. That's a bad <laughs> idea. Uh, okay. Uh, here, I would make one thing. Direct sales companies are okay if you are below average intelligence. It is probably the best earning potential you're going to have. If you are high aggression, high sociability, below average intelligence, or average to slightly above average intelligence, direct selling is a great opportunity for you. And, and you really shouldn't be undersold. But direct selling is not MLMs, okay? That is very different, okay? In direct selling, the person who recruits you is not getting a portion of your profits, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. So that's key. I guess that's that's the key thing to look for is, is, <laughs> is there some kind of like upstream pyramid yes. going on so yeah. what i'm saying is the number one way that i would suggest making money is go out there understand the type of companies that are like these boring simplistic companies mm -hmm. you really probably want to focus on one that's very low capex that mm -hmm. means you know like you wouldn't want to get into construction because that requires a lot of construction equipment um it, one that we're actually experimenting with right now is landscaping. We're helping mm -hmm. uh, a friend of ours get into the industry. It's a low CapEx industry and we're, you know, giving them the money up front to do that. And, and with these sorts of industries, you, you might be surprised the type of people who will invest in you to do this because it can be a very easy investment for, for fairly low amounts of money. You know, if you're looking for, let's say under 30 K for something like this, and you're going to your friends like, okay, I need a, a certain type of truck. I need a snow plow. I need an, et cetera. One, you can give them ownership of those assets and two, just say, okay, I'll pay you like 10% for the rest of this business's life cycle. And if they know that you're a hard worker, who's like not flaky and has some experience in the industry, it's actually a fairly easy financial investment for them. So this is even if you can't get like an SBA loan because you have a criminal history or something, as long as you have people who believe in you often within your cultural group, you know, this is a strategy you can use. And if you're like, I have nobody who believes in me, then like, maybe you should think about like why that is <laughs> because before you do anything like this, right. Any of these ideas that we're talking about, you do need to work the grind. You do need to go to an office or work for a landscaping company or work for a something like that to begin to understand how the world actually works and build up enough cash deposit so that you can try for the type of things that will make you a lot of money. But I would focus on things that the environment around you actually needs. Now, a yeah. final thing, if you're going to talk about hard mode, but they can make a lot of money is look at local RFPs. These are, so that, those are requests for proposal. These are basically most local governments, at least in the United States, are obligated to go through a formal procurement process whereby they publicly post 
an advertisement essentially for a service or product that they need. This could be anything from lead remediation, education for a certain neighborhood to landscaping services to computer supplies for a school. Yeah. And so you, you can see that, understand uh, and work your way towards these positions. So if you're starting one of these companies, you know, if it can be a wounded veteran owned or a disadvantaged minority woman owned, you know, you can get advantages. So here are places to go. If you have uh, us in our society that can get you these sort of unfair economic advantages. Um, I don't want to say unfair. I mean, obviously whatever, however you want to see it. Special treatment. Special treatment. Yeah. That can be a strategy to go down, but it's it's significantly more like advanced. I, I might even do like a like look into specifically how you do this and how you get to that stage with one of these companies because you're gonna want to be able to get customers outside of the RFPs before you get the RFPs, which can take a while to win. Yeah, sort of the um, secret to winning RFPs is before they ever even get posted, you are speaking with that government office, with that university, with that whatever it may be. No, this is what people say. I think that's a lie. Uh, if you're starting, Malcolm, right? our business just won an RFP. You know why? Because we basically made sure that we were going to win it ahead of time. <laughs> now, I'm, okay. I'm not kidding you. So like during the final bidding process, they came back to us and they're like, all you have to do is lower your price to this and you're going to win it. And then we did and we just won it. So sorry. Are you allowed <laughs> to say that? Do I need to cut part of this? Uh, I think it's okay. I'm not naming the climate. Like, sorry, okay. I'm not, well, I'm not, I'm not naming the client. Here's what I would say next. Because this is actually a final thing that's important to note is a lot of people will be like, well, I have this skill, right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to start a business around this skill. Like I'm good at consulting in this area or I'm mm. going to, oh my God, like don't do something like making jewelry or fashion. Like that will, I'm making jewelry now. Whoa. She's making jewelry now. She's got her own website. Unless you have like 5 million followers, in which case, totally start your tequila brand, start your jewelry. Well, in which case you're just milking followers. But yes. let's, let's, sorry, I gotta, I gotta be clear here. The reason not to do this is because then your business isn't sellable. And it's something to keep in mind is that your, is your business sellable? So mm -hmm. if your business is like non-differentiated, like if you have a landscaping company and you have a bunch of people working for you, you can sell that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and you can sell that after only like building it out for like three years and then have like $10 million to your name or something, right? Pretty easily. But, you know, if you've grown it to any extent, and we can talk about how to do that, but if you're doing something where you are the key player, right, it's never going to be sellable. Like if I'm doing a consulting business or a, a, a law business where I am the key player, well, no one's going to want to buy you for that. Yeah. Uh, but like a consulting business over some area that I have some specialty, I'm never going to be able to sell that because I am the key person in that business. Yeah. It is referred to as key man risk. And yeah. like sometimes even like, even if you have just really important salespeople, it will scare it will scare people who are looking to buy. So like, man, so much of this business depends on this one person. That's a little bit too risky. Can I close with just returning to your mother's statement of just ask for no, more money? Hold on. Before we close, there's one more thing I need to say about key man risk. If you are going into one of these businesses, like if you have some skill set and you're like, I think I could do this on my own, what you're really going to need to learn is how to do mass cold outreach. And that is for a separate video or for something to you explore on your own. But if you're like, I have this skill set and I don't understand how my company gets all these clients can learn how to build a sales pipeline that could be another video for us and how to do mass cold outreach but yeah, you're gonna have to be prolific well just like with finding a partner right you, you you're not gonna just you know approach anyway, five you were people saying and find your wife so as i was saying 
we've been advised to just ask for more money. Now, an employee can do this 100%. And also like key employees can do this and, and pretty consistently get higher wages. There's a risk to this that I think a lot of people don't consider. And so I just want to end with this one warning in terms of the just ask for more. If someone does end up paying you more, if your boss pays you more, the more salary you end up making, the more it means that you're going to be the first person on the chopping block when you know your, your business goes through some kind of hard point because they're going to look at, okay, who right now is costing me the very most? You know, what what is the most expensive thing I can cut? And so if you are not making, that is like literally provably bringing in more money than you are costing, the more money that you demand, the more you put yourself at risk for being fired. So I just wanted to end with that because it's something yeah, the next that we always looked at. And that is so true. And it's so something that people don't understand. You yeah. can get that raise in the short term, but you are now on the list to be fired. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of employees, they don't realize when they're asking us, they've come to us and I think they walk away feeling great because they got the raise and they don't understand that now they're on the fired list. Well, and the most important thing too is, you know, people, when they ask for raises, it's often like, oh, you know, my, my family this, or I just had the surgery that, or, you know, whatever, like, oh, it's just been really hard for me or my rent's really high. The business does not care about your personal life. The business cares about how essential you are for the business making money. So you really, when you want to ask for a raise, you need to basically show, demonstrate that you are making more money than you're asking for. And that if they want to keep getting that money from you, that they need to pay you more, but that they're going to make more money from you being there than from you not being there. And none of this is CEO cruelty or anything like that. Your value to the business is literally what you cost the business less than what you make the business. Yeah. The higher that cushion is, the more job security you have. Exactly. The more you lessen that, the more you are milking for the company, but the less job security you have because you are literally worth less to the company. Yep. So just something to consider because it, it really astounds us as CEOs, like how little people get that. Like we're just like... <laughs> <laughs> I, you yeah. know, I love you and I love your family and I love whatever. We, like, we never whatever. ask our board for raises. We are, we are so underpaid at this point that I think we're basically unfireable because we could never be replaced, which is yeah. what we wanted. We wanted job security more than wealth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Love you, Simone. Love you too, Malcolm.